This is the OM Genomics Podcast. This is episode four, and today we're talking about the eternal should I do a PhD question. We're your hosts, Maria Nadestad and Robert Abukhalil. And this is our first video episode, so come check it out on the OM Genomics YouTube channel if you want to see our lovely faces. Before we start the episode, a quick headline from last month in biotech. The FTC has ordered sequencing company Illumina to divest from Grail, a biotech that develops liquid biopsy tests for early cancer detection. In 2016, Grail was spun off from Illumina, but they bought it back in 2021 for $7 billion. Now you may be wondering, what is the FTC so concerned about? Well, let's just say the word monopolist appears 17 times in the FCC's opinion on the matter. Uh, specifically, they're worried that because other liquid biopsy companies rely on Illumina sequencers, Illumina could go back to giving Grail discounts on instruments and reagents as they did back when it was fully owned by Illumina, which would hurt competition. That was the headline that caught our attention last month. Now on to the episode. Welcome, Steve. We brought you on today because we got a question from a listener. They asked, is getting a PhD necessary for a career in industry, or could I still find opportunities with a master's and experience? And I've received a lot of variations on this question of should I do a PhD over the course of the OM Genomics YouTube channel? So we wanted to bring Steve on because he is one of the wonderful people we know in bioinformatics who have been successful in industry and does not have a PhD. And since both Robert and I have PhDs, we wanted to balance <laughs> out perspectives a little bit. So Steve, can you give us a quick rundown of your background, like school-wise and where you ended up now? Yeah, sure. Um, perspective is good. So I'm glad you guys invited me, first of all. So a little bit about me, I've been working in bioinformatics for about eight years now. I had my start way back working more in physics, actually, at Agilent Technologies, and then eventually came into the software side of things and then found my love in genomics. Um, and then at that point, I worked at a startup for a bit, a different startup where I met Maria, actually. And then I eventually had a chance to work at Invitib, which is a bigger crew. And I had a great opportunity after that to where I work now, be a director of bioinformatic engineering. And so it's been a path over the course. Um, my schooling, as Maria said, I don't have a PhD, but I'm in the field, I'm having fun. Um, but my schooling, I got my undergrad at MIT. I actually majored in chemistry. Um, back in the day, I thought that mass spectrometry was the future of the world. It would solve all our problems. Of course, I learned things over time, and I learned that. Mass spec is relatively explored, um, and there are newer, higher fields, in my opinion, like genomics. Yeah, I mean, we're happy you're in genomics today. Um, <laughs> but what did you want to be when you grow up, like back in college? In college? <laughs> so I remember as a kid, kid, like what got me to apply to MIT in the first place is um, I watched a show called Dexter's Lab, and I wanted to grow up and be a scientist with a secret lab. So I thought I'll go to the best chem school in the country, which at the time was MIT for graduate chemistry, which I did not understand what that meant. So I applied there for my undergrad. Um, and yeah, that's what got me in the science world in the first place. But then from then on, I had a, a lab opportunity. I did a couple of lab opportunities in college, mostly in chemistry slash mass spec, but I had one that was more in microbial science. And so I got introduced to the whole concept of NGS, um, working with more population genetics, which was really cool. So that kind of sparked the initial interest in the field. So on this podcast, we're known for asking the hard questions. And um, I noticed on your LinkedIn profile, you claim you were part of the MIT dance troupe. <laughs> now, a few things. Um, First of all, how come we didn't know about this until now? And second of all, uh, do you have videos to share for our for our listeners? Um, yeah, I guess first of all, I didn't know that was on my LinkedIn. That's interesting. <laughs> but yeah, I was in the dance group for about one, either one semester or one year. I don't remember how, how long I was on there. There's probably a video online of our performance that we did at the end of the year. So 
if you look hard enough, you can find it. <laughs> You're like, oh, I gotta go check out what's on my LinkedIn. <laughs> no, it's great. It adds personality. We're just disappointed that you never like danced for us. Um, we feel like we've been missing out. <laughs> When you were in college and were trying to decide what to do next, did you consider going to graduate school? And like, how did you make your decision to enter industry? So that was actually um, in college when I was a junior and thinking about, okay, what will I do next? I was definitely going to stay in the science world more for chemistry. And I wanted to go to, go to school actually at the time. But then the question came up of what would I go to school for? And as I asked around, talked to professors, talked to people who are just graduating out there in the world, one thing that kept on um, coming up and I kept on arriving back to was uh, when you go for the PhD, go for something specific, know what you want to get out of it. And at the time I was a junior going on senior and I, I had no idea, like zero idea. And so I talked to one friend in particular who was in chemistry, but now they've moved out of the field more into just software engineering but um at the time they chose to work a bit first before they went into their phd and it seemed like for them it allowed them to a find peace and one thing they did say is that in industry you do get paid <laughs> <laughs> at the time at the time that wasn't the highest on my list but just like um being able to get hands-on and really understand what i want to do in the field and get a phd in that so i don't hate it the entire time yeah it's actually a really good thing to think about i think a lot of us don't think about what the financial situation is going to look like in the future we're just like oh let me just find what i'm passionate about but nobody tells us like oh if you major in this you're going to make twice as much money as if you major in this other thing like, <laughs> nobody's that stark about it one of the things we were like thinking about asking about when it comes to the should you do a PhD is like the opportunity cost, right? So most PhDs take like five years, uh, maybe more, but let's say in bioinformatics, the average is probably around five years. I found out yesterday as we were like uh, stalking you online that the two of us graduated college the same year. So it's like, oh, that's really easy for me to oh, like nice. understand what was going on then because like our paths diverged from like we were both in college, different colleges. I did a PhD, you went into industry, and then we met at DNA Nexus and had pretty similar jobs there. That already tells you a little bit that there's like different ways to get to the same place, right? Yes, it does. Um, one thing I will say is I, in my experience, I am very privileged. Um, one thing I have to acknowledge a lot in my life is the moment I went to, to MIT, it was like I got the gold ticket from the chocolate factory. So as I got into work experiences, people just trusted me to know what I was doing. And I've seen my other colleagues who were like me, chose to go to industry post-college, but didn't go to quite of a high ranking school. And I could just see that people did not trust what, what they were saying. Having that come up PhD would have helped them a lot. So that's just something I want to make sure we, I highlight, I, like, you know, there's a bit more weight to when I, when I said things back in the day. There were moments in my career where having that come a PhD would have helped a, a ton. Oh, really? Can you tell us yeah. more? So let me, I remember one specific one, Maria, when we were working in the same place, we were doing an, a request for information for a customer. And as part of that, we have to go document our processes, document how our applications work, document the science behind them. And there was a point where we came to like, okay, who's going to sign each, each form? And it was really hard to get my name on the form because for a lot, a lot of people that were signing, they had the comma PhD. And the vibe I got was that people felt that was convincing to a customer to see a full list of comma PhDs. And so I kind of felt like there was a like pushback there when I was trying that out. That's interesting. I wonder if was some of that because there was some scientific material relating to that. Yeah, and, and I oftentimes wonder, you know, was that just me in my head with my imposter syndrome, thinking, okay, here I am hanging out with these combat PhDs, but I'm, I don't have that. Can I like hang with them in the same way? Am, am I real? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that must be especially difficult when you're coming 
like when you're at a company where you're working around a lot of scientists, right? I mean, you're in a scientific field, so it's like your yeah. natural environment at this point is being surrounded by PhDs. Um, yeah, I think at the start, that took some time to get used to, just like being in that room where everyone has gone to school for a long time, and they've gone through that process to get a PhD, and I, I had not. Um, initially, like, I felt it was rough, but that, again, was more because of me internally being, am I imposter, you know, am I in the wrong place, do I belong here? But every time as I talk with the scientists, more like you, Maria, like, I learned that, hey, we're all scientists, we're all trying to help the world in some way, we're all on the same team. I think that kind of brings up an interesting question of when people ask, should I get a PhD? Like, what kind of job are you actually looking for? If you do want to be like a research scientist, I can imagine the answer might be yes. But if you're doing more engineering, maybe it's a nice to have. I do think that's a good point. Um, I try and hire a lot now. And this one thing I've seen in the field is um, a bioinformatician, that skill set is split into three types of roles, like a pipeline engineer, um, a data analyst, and then an algorithm developer. Each one of those roles, it does require a certain type of learning and teaching. I found that the algorithm roles do require that come up PhD. You need to learn how to um, learn when you don't know anything. When, when you hit that wall, you need to learn how to move forward. And that type of teaching is what a PhD is for, at least from my point of view. Um, for a pipeline engineer, you just need to know how to understand what the other two roles are saying and turn that mm -hmm. into a, some production code. Um, the word production analyzing is used a lot. And I found that um, a really good software engineer, you can work with them and teach them the methodologies to become a good pipeline engineer. There's a bit of a gap because a lot of terms they won't know a lot of reasons why um, the applications fail, they won't quite understand yet. But if they have like a scientist, a PhD, if they have just a guide with them to help explain things as they come up, they can get there. For the data science, um, when I say data science, I'm thinking more working with the lab to track an assay in production and just track like assay drift, um, just how the reagents are doing over time. Personally, I don't think you need a PhD for that. A master's in like, data science would help a lot but again like it does require that how do you navigate and learn in the unknown that comes from a phd what about setting the direction just for an entire scientific research group yeah so my hot take is um a phd does help but experience and time in the field helps more um, I've worked with some just phenomenal scientists, um, and the ones I found the most successful at leading an initiative a, a project are usually doctors, people who had experience being a, a doctor, and they understand at the end of the day, like, for this assay, what are people looking for? What does the doctor need? People who understand the requirements of the end user are the best people to help lead what the project actually is. Um, they, they may have PhDs. Um, the ones who have been really good, in my opinion, have been MD, PhDs, so a lot of schooling. <laughs> but um, I found that just people having experience with what our field is in practice helps more. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think for some of us, we don't have enough direction at that point in our careers. Like you were, I think, saying something similar about you didn't know exactly what you would study in a PhD. So it seemed crazy to just go into a PhD because you have to pick something very specific at the very beginning, right? <laughs> we have another friend who was in industry for a few years before she went to do a PhD. She probably got into a better PhD program or like with a better advisor that she met through things she was doing in industry. And she has a great background that enables her, I think, to do much better in her PhD. She understands the field better. She has a better network, could probably get better opportunities to do research with cool people because she's already proven herself. So that also shows a third route where you can start an industry, see how it goes, and then decide if it makes sense for you to do a PhD. And then you're probably coming into it with a head start. Yeah, I do like that the hybrid route a lot. Um, one question I have, and can I ask you guys questions here? Yeah. Absolutely not. Definitely, <laughs> definitely ask those questions. We also yeah. so have other questions. <laughs> yeah. So I guess first, Maria and then Robert, I want you guys to answer this, this question. Having 
done a PhD first and then worked. What has your experience been in terms of have those connections in being your PhD helped you when you got to the industry world? Yes, definitely. I can start. So I, before doing a PhD, I only had a biology major and a couple of computer science and math classes under my belt. I would not have been able to get any interesting jobs. Um, I also didn't go to MIT, right? So I didn't have that stamp of approval. <laughs> so getting into a PhD program was probably my only way to do anything more than become a lab tech or retrain for something else than biology. Those were kind of my options. And they didn't look good, so I chose the mm -hmm. PhD. And I, I think that was a good choice. I mean, the other thing I could have done was do like a master's in computer science or something. But you have to pay for a master's, and the PhD is free. Uh, yeah. You get paid to do a PhD in technical fields, in the US at least. But for a master's, you have to pay for it. So that's like a pretty big difference. <laughs> Given what you know now, what you've done with your career, do you feel like you went into the right program for your PhD? Oh, that's a good question. Yes. I think it's a lot more about the advisor you get for your PhD than the actual program. So I did my PhD with Mike Schatz and he was in the middle of a nice upward trajectory in his career at the time. So he was fairly young, had a few students, about five people in his lab, maybe when I joined. He was a great advisor. I greatly enjoyed working with him and introduced me to some very interesting research questions with good data behind them that, you know, enabled me to be on the cutting edge in a way that I would never have been able to do for myself. And you know, many other places I would have gotten into a completely different research question. So I don't know what that would look like. Mm -hmm. And I liked some of the other graduate schools I applied to, but yeah, in the end, I, I think it's a lot more about your advisor than yeah. like the school. How about you, yeah. Robert? This is a tough question because like, if I'm thinking, did I go to the right place? There's kind of two levels to that. One is yes, because that's where I met Maria. So I wouldn't change a thing. <laughs> but otherwise, yeah, I mean, I think the PhD has been pretty helpful for me, even though pretty much all my jobs have been software focused. I think it's gotten me a nice combination of skills that is relatively rare, like people who are have a background in software during my undergrad and then a PhD in bioinformatics that kind of gives me almost the best of both worlds where I can work on the software, but I can also kind of be the point person who translates things for other people on my team who do not have the background, for example, or who's able to flag potential technical solutions that we will probably not want to go through. like. If we know there's a bioinformatics tool that exists that solves your problem, maybe we don't want to reinvent the wheel poorly. Can you give an example of that? Because I know you have one at the top of your mind right now. <laughs> a few years ago, I was working at a company where they were developing a new sequencing technology. And at the time, they had just started testing their solution. And so they were mostly sequencing small genomes. And so they were storing the reference genomes in a relational database, which, you know, is fine when your genome is a hundred kilobases, but then we wanted to start looking at human data. And someone one day was asking me, Hey, I noticed the, uh, our internal website is really slow. And I added the human genome. <laughs> in our database and I looked into it and <laughs> was like, wow, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's not do that. Don't want to put three gigabytes string into a single row of a database. But so yeah, things like that, where just the person setting it up did not, I had no idea what the size was going to be because all the, mm -hmm. all the genomes at that point were tiny. So it made sense to do that. Steve, I remember at DNX is like one of the conversations we often had at lunch was like you going like, oh, should I get a PhD? And you were like, you know, asking everybody around the table, mm -hmm. like, oh, I'm trying to decide, like, I feel like I should probably do it, but 
should I? I don't know. What do you think? And all of us with PhDs were like, don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. I actually talked with my um, Barbara about that, actually. <laughs> really? I was getting a haircut one day. Yeah, and we, like, I just talked about, you know, I was thinking about getting a PhD, but then all my coworkers are like, no, don't. And he was like, Steve, do they have PhDs? Don't trust them then. <laughs> I'm like, whoa, what are you talking about? Don't trust them. And he was like, um, oftentimes it's hard to see what you've gained from experience once you've gone through it. Mm, yeah, for but, sure. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I remember this very well because I remember when I talked to him, he was like, Steve, stop. Don't trust them. <laughs> It's somewhat true. I was just asking one of our friends who was there at the time telling you, no, don't do a PhD. I did one. It's not worth the pain, you know? And, mm -hmm. and he was telling me today, as I mentioned to him that we were having this conversation, he said, I think at the time the pain was still fresh. <laughs> I'm pretty sure at that point it had already been like 10 years for him <laughs> since he <laughs> did his PhD. But yeah, the pain lasts a while. So that's the other <laughs> thing, right? Like we might kind of discount what we gained from the experience, but I think it's also really that, you know, we did PhDs starting at times in our lives when we didn't have the level of knowledge and access to the field that we knew you already had because you, mm. we were like, I did this whole PhD and I'm sitting here with the same job as this guy, Steve. And like, now he wants to go to a PhD. You, you're already at the same point that I'm at. You've clearly made it, right? So I'm like, yeah, whatever. Now that you're here, we're starting from the same point going forward. So then the only question you... is like, would a PhD actually help you progress in your career past that point? You bring up an interesting uh, point there, like implicitly, uh, the you've already made it. Like you know, I think for everyone, they all really should have a different definition of making it. But I think that we in this room, at least from what I'm hearing, we have the same like idea in our head. I still think a lot about going back to school for a PhD, and it's not for the improvements in the workplace or the opportunities. It's more just to learn how to you know learn in the unknown. It's more to go through that and have that same teaching that I've seen. Because I do see like how you move in the world, Maria. And I do think you you have gained some fundamental like life skills based of your on your PhD. And so there are things I also want to like gain too. Mm. But in terms of like a career, like I don't think it'll help much. There will be some opportunity costs of my time not being in the in the workplace. Yeah, what I'm hearing is that at this point it might not be about your career advancement, but more of your personal fulfillment almost. Yeah, like a box to check in my life. Oh, a box to check. That's very different. Yeah. <laughs> from like, oh, you would enjoy the experience of the PhD or like doing research instead. Yeah, it's like uh, a self self-actualization, Steve. Can you learn can you learn we don't know anything? Have you learned what that process is like? Mm, I feel like you already do that right i mean haven't you been doing a lot of research as part of your career so far like i, I yeah. feel like you might have already done something akin to phd level research you've certainly done research alongside people who have phds and you've been like right alongside them i think doing part of mm -hmm. that research yeah i think this this kind of goes back to the a part of me is always thinking, maybe there's something I don't know. There's something there that I haven't seen that if I do it, I'll see it and I'll gain it. But I'm, I'm always thinking that it's like a Steve problem. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I wonder sometimes is, is the process of going through a PhD for five years and the skills that you gain, is that comparable to the process of spending your first five years in industry? And the skills you gain doing that. So like, is there something different about the PhD that's not just time and experience? Hmm. I think it's different from my experience, what I've seen, um, going straight to industry helped me learn how to actually make a product and put it out there in the world hmm. and just have something, have an idea transition into a real thing that exists in the world. Um, I think um, one thing I noticed very early on was uh, the more I work with 
PhDs, the more I realized they didn't have that experience of turning an idea into a product in the world. And it would usually come in the form of we're talking, we're trying to brainstorm and plan out a project, and you just couldn't either understand where I was coming from or they would have all these ideas they would chase and it would waste time because we need to focus on the product at the end of the day. So there's there's some learning, a different learning that you get from working in industry versus PhD. However, I do think the gap of industry learning is a bit a bit faster to close than the gap of uh, the PhD learning that you do. But again, mm-hmm. this is me not having done a PhD, so I could be wrong. <laughs> Trust what your barber says. <laughs> <laughs> The thing is, the special thing that you get from doing a PhD, not having the degree, that's a separate question, right? But the experience of doing a PhD is what creates that pain that we all remember. It's not having any direction or very specific goals, but having to make something out of almost nothing, setting a research direction no matter how good your PhD advisor is, they're never going to be handholding you nearly as much as like a scrum master or something like at work, right? You know, you get given like very specific small tickets if you're a junior software engineer, for instance. But, you know, doing research as a graduate student, it's your project and you have to run it. You start from a very different place when you're in industry where you start by getting these small tasks and building up to something bigger and a phd just like throws you out to like do it on your own and like make something of yourself here you go here's a compute cluster you can play with go google it if you don't know how to like code and that, that's basically like <laughs> i think that's where the pain comes from partly yeah. you also yeah. have to like Trauma. make the progress and you have to defend your work when you're like, I don't know what I'm doing. Oh, that's an interesting point. When you're in science and you're presenting your work, it does feel like you have to be more defensive about things where people will, you know, try to poke holes into it because that's kind of science. And they want to know, like, have you tried to account for this or that? Whereas maybe when you're building a product, people aren't as aggressive in their questioning, perhaps. (laughs) I think that's a, a great point because um, I think I've seen that mentality of I have to defend my work come in my interaction in industry when I'm trying to work with the PhD and I want to make a change to what they've done. It is a mountain to climb. And I, I will say, Maria, where we worked, it spoiled me a little bit because that didn't happen. <laughs> but as soon as I moved to other environments, I started hitting that wall where people are very defensive about their work because that's just how they've been trained. Hmm. And I guess as you talk more about it, I'm seeing where that training might be coming from. But it's, it's, it's interesting to hear that. Yeah, I mean, it's called a thesis defense. It forces you to take ownership over a whole project much earlier in your career than you would do if you entered industry and you built up to more and more responsibility with other people. Instead, you're responsible for yourself, for your own piece that is like your PhD project. And I I think that's a valuable experience. But yeah, I've had that interesting disconnect with software engineers many times where I just assume they're going to take ownership over something. And especially if they're yeah. junior, they just like don't. And I just don't remember ever being that junior because I got thrown into that PhD <laughs> and I do my project on my own. You know, that's actually really interesting because like looking at the same issue from the other side, I had a situation where I gave a new employee, they, they had a PhD, a task that I did not explain well. So that was my fault. But then they took that task and they figured out how to get it done in their own way. So when they gave me the final results, I realized we can't actually use this. It doesn't follow any best practice. It'll be hard to maintain over time. Just general like software engineering best practices were not followed at all. But the fact that they're able to hack away at it, quote unquote, and get it done, I was impressed by. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think in both of our cases, we probably had to communicate more and that's always the answer is like over communicate and that's the kind of thing you actually do learn by working with people so one thing i didn't do that much of my in my phd is like i had never worked on a shared code base 
Like I had never had a Git repo that other people had ever committed to before I went to DNA Nexus, like before I had finished my PhD and started my first industry job. Never. Mm -hmm. And suddenly there were code reviews and I'm like, what is this? This is slowing me down so much. <laughs> Man, Maria, Maria, I, let, me tell, let me tell you, that has been, I think after DNA Nexus, um, that has probably been the most contentious point for me. Just people adapting to the code review process, adapting to when someone makes a comment, followed best practice, just adapting to get that type of feedback and not entering fight mode. That has been probably the <laughs> one um, point, of, point of friction I've seen, <laughs> or defense mode. <laughs> While I was doing my PhD, at some point we decided to start using Git and, and had the code up on GitHub. And so a colleague of mine who I was working on this with, I wanted to make a change. And so he, um, well, they didn't want to figure out how to set up Git because that's a pain. So he made the changes on his copy and sent me the file by email, which I then <laughs> incorporated. And the commit message says, you know, modifications by this other person. <laughs> so yeah, I wonder, I wonder if things have gotten better. It's possible that nowadays in PhD programs, the advisors are also more attuned to these things and would say, yeah, you need a, a GitHub repo because how else are we going to collaborate on this? I hope it's changed. I would assume so, but I also can't really tell what the technical culture is outside of my own little bubble. Well, I think I have a way to figure this out. All Ooh, three wow. of us. All three of us should go get another PhD. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like that being said, I, me, me personally, I'm not opposed to ever like going back to school for another PhD. The only question in my mind would just be spend some years not getting paid as well in order to gain some knowledge. And that trade-off is a big deal, which is bad because it becomes a bigger deal the longer I work in the industry. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you get used to that sweet, sweet dough or whatever it is the kids say these days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I actually, I, I want to hear from um, Robert. What led to you going for a PhD? So in undergrad, I was studying computer engineering, but through a science fair project, I kind of got introduced to chemistry. We were doing a science fair project on synthesizing cadmium selenide quantum dots, obviously. <laughs> the best kinds of quantum dots. And it's a, fl a flashy experiment. That's good. Right? Exactly. And then during undergrad summers, I spent a couple summers in chemistry labs, actually. However, I wasn't doing mass spec, I'm sad to say. My intention was to learn the chemistry, but I always ended up finding things that were going too slow in the software and optimizing them. And then I spent a summer doing bioinformatics. And I think that's where I really got interested in pursuing it further. Mm -hmm. And I found it a bit more approachable than chemistry. Okay. Yeah. So for Maria, she felt like she didn't have many options. Um, that's why she chose the PhD. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, Maria. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I'm curious for you, Robert, did you feel like you didn't have any other options? Like, what was your, your outlook at the time? I suppose I could have gotten a job in industry doing more engineering stuff, either software or more hardware design. So I did have choices, but I, I don't recall ever considering going into that. I was just really fascinated by the idea of diving into the biology of genomes. Yeah. I remember for, for me, like looking back at the time, I was unsure as to what I'll get my PhD in within the field of chemistry. There's like so much you can do there. Um, so I thought if I work as a, a lab tech in the field I find interesting now, then I would figure out over time. And so I thought that was the route I would go. But of course, once I start to actually work, you know, I see more, I see other fields and, you know, I make a move. 
Mm. But yeah, at the time, like you, you don't really know much about what the impact of the choice you're about to make will have on, on your life overall. You just have to make a choice given what you know. And at the time, my exposure was you can work a bit and, and learn from your, your work of what you really want. I think that's actually like the ideal advice that I would give to most people is if you don't want to become a professor or you're not sure which specific field of research you're interested in, you should probably just go to industry first to kind of look around, but it's hard because you can't always get a good overview of the field. At your first job, you said you were a lab tech uh, doing like mass spec work. And I have no idea what like mass spec work <laughs> actually looks like, but do you feel like you got a good overview of what the research field is? Like, do you now feel like you have a better sense of what you would do a PhD in if you had to start today? And how did you get that perspective? Yeah, no, let's definitely talk about that. Um... So at the time, I picked that first job based on my gut and what I enjoyed in college. Did that first job help me get the perspective I wanted? In hindsight, no, not, not, not even close. <laughs> I got lucky in my first job in that I worked for Agilent, which was a big, a big company. So there were many people I could talk to working in different fields. And at some point, we bought a company that was doing a mixture of genomics and mass spec. And I got more exposure to the scientists on that side. Then through conversation with them, I was able to then grow my understanding of genomics and say, oh, that actually looks really good. And they let me like work with them a little bit to get more and more hands-on. So just talking to people helped me just grow my understanding. Um, then when I made that first jump into genomics, I still didn't have the perspective that I, I wanted in the field. It, it, it took me until I started going to conferences more and talking with other scientists to really grow that perspective over time. So conversations is how I grew my perspective of the field. Uh, to your point now, even now, do I feel like I know what I would go back to school for? I feel like I do. Like if someone asked me now, Steve, what would you go back to school for? I'd say, I want to do something in epigenetics. So there are people in the field I've met, I've talked to, I've had exposure to, and I now know what I want more now. But yeah, it just took time and conversations with the real people in the world. I, I think that we do have a good relationship and it's been possible to get like FaceTime with people like, um, I remember I wanted to talk with Anshul a bit about what his lab does and any openings for a PhD spot. And I was able to just get a conversation, a response. And so I feel like that was because I had more experience in industry. I worked at DNX at the time. So it was like, oh, you know what you're doing. So I will talk to you. Um, so yeah, I do feel like I can get my pick of a lab more now. I feel like that. I don't know for sure though, in practice. Right. Yeah, There's only one way to find out. So we've referred to DNA Nexus many times because that was when you and I talked every day at lunch, right? So what has mm -hmm. happened in your career since DNA Nexus and how has career so, growth looked for you? Yeah, I would say after the Nexus, I actually worked at Invite with uh, Robert over here. That was a interesting job because um, I really wanted to get more lab lab interaction in my work. Uh, and the Nexus was more on the software side of things, but Invite was like a full bioinformatics shop. We had a lab. We'd run our samples through. We'd have our own like data science team analyze the results. We'd have our own bioinformaticians working the assay itself. Having not done a PhD, I think working in an assay development group felt like working in a lab. It was just me, two algo devs, um, one other Python engineer, and this MD PhD actually. And we just go around and talk about the results of our latest experiments, what it looks like, what we all think, what our viewpoints are. And I did get opportunities to get more hands-on with the research side of things there. And I did make some mistakes there, which I feel made me think, man, going back to, to a, for a PhD is probably a good move. <laughs> There's one mistake I remember where I was analyzing the results of an RNA-seq experiment, and I was trying to determine some QC thresholds. And for some odd reason, I picked just a random normalization technique. I didn't think too much about it. And I just did the analysis. Um, but almost immediately, the, when I was presenting the entire group, they're all like, what normalization technique did you use? That was an insanely big deal. But I didn't know that was a big deal because it was kind of me just getting hands-on with it and getting it done. So I, I, just, I felt like um, 
there were more opportunities like, like that in Invita that really helped me see more where my knowledge um, would hit walls. But I also saw where my perspective would help a lot. Like I understood what best practice was. I understood how to turn like an idea into code, into a product that we can push out the door. I understood what that process was. And a lot of that my partners did not have that same insight as me. And so I think Invita really helped me just see that, okay, I have learned a lot in, at the Nexus and my prior experiences, I've learned a lot. And there's more to learn still on the, on the other side, more on the scientific, like asset development side. After Invita, I actually chilled for a couple months. Then a former colleague from DNX has reached out for my current opportunity, which is to have a director role at Curious Life Science. So I'm still working there. So, you know, I have some opinions, but these opinions are my own, as I should have said at the start. But um, <laughs> my, my, my opinions are kind of the same as in Vitae. Like, I'm able to get more hands-on in different ways. It's a director role, so I'm more outlining what the project should be how we should go about doing things, how we should go about achieving what our goal is. So I'm still making the, the mistakes that I made in the past. I've learned and improved. I make slightly different mistakes now. But in terms of things I've learned, so hot take here, I feel like um, I'm hitting that wall where people who came in from a PhD versus people who've come in from more of a software like industry side, um, there are some friction points because not because I manage people now, I have to deal a lot with that friction and help people just navigate how can they combine their skill sets to work to, together mm -hmm. in the projects. That's been happening a lot. So I've gotten very hands-on with that. And that's also teaching me about, okay, I think I still want to go back to school, but I'm starting to understand when I talk to like the Andrews and Marias, when they say, don't do a PhD, I'm starting to understand where they're coming from. There are some bad habits that are learned from the trauma of a PhD that don't work well in the workplace. So, you know, it's, it's been a, it's been a journey. It's been a journey. On the flip side, there are assumptions made by people that come from the pure industry side about PhDs that again, don't work well in the workplace. So I think there's some um, hybrid approach I've taken has taught me a lot now. Can you tell us more about that friction between the PhDs and software engineers, how they're clashing and what have you learned so far about how to prevent the clashing? Yeah, so the clash comes primarily of people having certain goals. So I'm going to generalize a lot here, but the pure industry software engineers, their goal is to couple together a product following best practice that they can push out into the, the world. The PhDs, their role is more of an algo dev role. So their concern is more hacking away at a pipeline, focusing just on the results and getting the calls to where they want them to be. Again, the metrics of the pipeline to where they want them to like be. But as a result, they've hacked away at a pipeline that they try and push out. And so from the pure industry software dev side, they see an unpolished product coming out that people are trying to push out and say, oh, we're done. This is it. This is live. From the PhD side, all they're seeing is people just criticizing their work without doing any context without acknowledging the fact that algorithm is really hard. Trying to develop an assay from nothing is extremely difficult. Parsing live experiments to understand the results and figure out the hyperparameters of your experiment or your of your product are really hard. Each side, they have their own hurdles that they've overcome and they do contribute to what the final product looks like. Mm. That's why I say most of the conflict lies, just grace and acknowledgement of each other. Yeah, I've heard the phrase like assuming good intent from the other side. It's a good phrase. It's a very good phrase. <laughs> I think one thing I would add on top of that is just um, in general, for academics coming into an industry, there is a timeline. The, time, the timeline has to be respected and hit. If you're not getting the results that you want, that needs to be communicated out immediately. And people need to be aware that the timeline might slip or change. If it's not communicated out, what, what it ends up happening is eventually you'll have your big presentation, the results on what people expect, and everyone just like freaks out. 
for people with no industry experience, that is a huge learning process, learning how to not be heads down in your work in the corner, but learning how to come up a lot, like every couple of days to say, hey, I'm doing this, and I've hit this wall and done that wall. Learning how to communicate your work as you work on it. Yeah, that's a major thing I've had to learn too. I love just going in my cave and working on something for weeks. And, and actually, um, kind of talking about that's common a bit, Maria, like, I think it is on people who like the perspective of like a PhD, like that type of work requires space and freedom to explore. It does require that. People need to respect that requires that. And people, they don't understand that, that their freedom is a necessary thing because they haven't like been through that. They haven't done the actual development themselves, the algorithm themselves. They haven't been through a PhD. So it's just a lack of understanding, I think, from the sides that are involved. Yeah, the deep scientific work is just a little bit different or quite different than the straightforward, especially like for junior software engineers we've talked about, right? They get given some tasks and they just have to do them. And we're pretty sure it's going to be possible, right? Like, but, yeah. you know, in the research experiences I've had, often we don't know if something's even going to work. So we do it in a hacky way because there's no point in following the best Python readability standards and, you know, commenting your code a lot and making sure everybody can read it and get it all checked in and code reviewed and stuff. No, there, there's no point mm -hmm. in doing that if you're not sure you're going to keep the code because you're not sure if the project's going to work at all. And so that's where the hacky code comes from. It's yeah. like the right response to the situation. But then, you know, you end up like trying to get into production later and everybody's like, wow, I thought this was done. What is this? <laughs> code is so crappy. What is this? You um, can't make me this at all. <laughs> yeah, you, we just, we do have to kind of work on that. But yeah, complaining about like the hacky code or like not giving the scientists time to then make it into good code. We're pairing them with a software engineer who can, you know, help implement best practices or something. So it is more maintainable. I think one thing I've tried to you kind of mention, Maria, is saying, okay, give them space and freedom to work up something that works. And then we'll have a separate team take what they've done and productionize it. That has run to, so that approach has, for me at least, has run to issues where people will feel like their work is not being appreciated, is being thrown away and redone. And so they feel personally impacted where if people have worked in industry for a while, they've been through code reviews where people say, oh, your code isn't good here and there. They're used to getting like feedback that what they've done isn't good. Uh, but for some people, it's like the first time they've gotten that feedback ever. And so it's point of content of contention. I mean, the magic word is prototype. Like, oh, I'm just prototyping this real quick. And like assuming that your code is maybe going to get thrown away. And that's yeah. maybe like how we have to set expectations for the scientists. Like, okay, your job is to figure out whether it's going to work and to get like a quick prototype, but we're probably going to rewrite it if it's, and like helping them be like, okay, how about you do it in Python, you know, like a language that the rest of the team understands as a starting point, right? Mm -hmm. Something that, yeah, I mean, there's like a few frameworks we can kind of set up that help the hacky code be a little bit more transferable into the production version. I wish that those lessons would be taught in school. Like I think the real, the real world does ask you to collaborate on code. It does ask you to let other people see your code, make comments on it, have it be thrown, thrown away at points. But it's more about the ideas and the conversation and the actual code. But I feel like in school, at least from what I saw when, when I was in school, that lesson isn't part of what's told. One thing I've found useful to help with that problem is to try, if possible, to set up some sort of framework within which the scientists can prototype their code. And maybe over time, you're like building up shared library code that they can reuse. And that also kind of sets a boundary for where the code lives and how it interacts with the world. While at Invitae, building a lot of internal tools, just having this framework let a lot of other people contribute directly without needing software engineers to kind of set it up properly. Yeah, that's a really good 
point, if you have some code that the scientists can import that they can then use and makes them go a little faster, they don't have to re-implement that, then they start to kind of see the value of having, you know, some code actually checked in. Yeah, you got to make sure there's some incentive there. Yeah, I think if you make it yeah. easy, that's the incentive, right? Like, yeah. it needs to be the easiest way for them to get to their hacky solution, rather than like copy pasting the code around, for example. Okay, so we've gotten into some really interesting tangents here on, yeah. on how to like do technical work with like research plus software teams coming together, which is really cool. I want to bring it back to the PhD question. Yeah, right? yeah. So you are now director of engineering, right? At your company, you said Keras. Would they normally have a PhD? Are there other roles that you would need a PhD for? So you did the engineering route rather than a more researchy route? Like, can you speak to that question of yeah. forking your career off into engineering land? Yeah, yeah. I, I think um, at the start, we kind of mentioned how, like, I think I said this. When I look at bioinformatics, it's a composition of different skills. And there's like Python engineering, data science, and like an algo dev. I would expect someone who's doing algo dev work to come from a PhD background. What we actually have a curious is one of the leads of the algo dev teams doesn't have a PhD either. They come from a math background. Mm -hmm. And it, it is possible to, you know, not have a PhD and do the other parts. Like there's no set rule in this world. So my formal title is director of bioinformatic engineering, but it is, you know, more on the engineering side of things. And from my point of view, I do think there is a, I won't say a glass ceiling because it's not like it's blocking me from going up. It was easier to go up focusing on the engineering skills, but there is a barrier on the uh, more research side because that does require this experience in pushing out a paper, for example, um, being able to not just do the actual like math and research itself, but being able to talk with a collaborator, turn that conversation into an experiment, and then turn that experiment into like a poster or a paper at some point. That is a real skill. And I, I will admit I don't have that skill. Like I've done poster presentations before. It was extremely rough because I didn't have the skill <laughs> for it. But there, there is a barrier there that prevents me from just being on the other side. Um, that being said, though, at this point in my career, I feel like I have a deep understanding of what I don't know. And I feel like if I were to try and get those skills, I could see myself gaining those skills on my own. But I would want to go to a PhD program to have a guide that I can talk to. Because again, the human interaction, just being able to ask questions to a person helps a ton, at least for me and how I learn. Yeah, that's really interesting. So you said like the skill of interacting with people and like driving research forward, putting out papers, working with collaborators, stuff like that. And it's interesting because this is actually one of the things that in my work right now, I find that I keep trying to do that in order to have bigger impacts. But then I find that I just don't like doing that type of work. Like I don't like writing papers. I actually prefer to make software systems that makes everybody else's lives easier or that like enables some, you know, building up some technology that enables new types of work, but maybe not being the one to like run the research. So yeah, that's actually something that both Robert and I have found that we end up actually doing a lot of the software engineering aspects of bioinformatics, just like you're doing. <laughs> like interesting. <laughs> So I, the question we could ask to each other is like, since you ended up doing software engineering anyway, a PhD isn't required for your job. So wasn't it pointless? Hard questions. Yeah. What do you think, Robert? Is it pointless? <laughs> <laughs> to me, the most important thing I got from my PhD was domain knowledge of genomics since I'm working in genomics and also the confidence of knowing that I can solve a complex problem while I'm staring into the abyss, you know, like it's, I feel like that's part of what it is. And so in that sense, it was useful. I'm sure I could have learned this in different ways. I'm not sure, maybe different industry experience, perhaps. 
That's actually a great point. Knowing that you can actually do this, look into your abyss and figure it out. I think for me, that's one of my check boxes I'm going to like check off. Like maybe I have, but I don't know. I just feel like doing a PhD would make me feel like I've suffered, which is, I feel like a toxic thing to say out loud. <laughs> the more we, we like talk about this out loud, I'm, I'm starting to think, am I looking for a PhD because I want to hurt myself a little bit? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, there's certainly like a level of masochism to getting a PhD, especially when you've already been in industry. Mm -hmm. So I don't like I wouldn't say that you're behind. But yeah, when you talk about, you know, the yeah, you you're saying that you want to feel like you can stare into the abyss and solve a hard problem. I think you can. You're looking for someone to make you do it. A PhD (laughs) would make you do it. That's the thing. It's hard to solve a hard problem. And maybe we just like, we need our jobs or our education programs to make us do that. That's that's a good point. That's a good point. I got one interesting comment on the video I have on YouTube, which is called, should you do a PhD? They said the head of research is usually a PhD, but the boss of the head of research is usually a master's. That's definitely true. That's definitely true. I've seen that so many times. It just goes back to um, getting a product out the door just requires time in the field. And then you can also get a master's that's focused on how to get a product out the door. Like that's a different skill entirely from a PhD or even like a software engineer or a mathematician. It's just, it's its own skill. Yeah. I mean, the master's might not be in the same a scientific field or anything. It could be an MBA, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's very true. And this person also just said that, like, the only reason to do a PhD is if you really enjoy learning and the process of learning. I'd go further than that and call it research because learning that I did before my PhD was very different from the learning I did in my PhD. Right. Like, you have to advance the field in some way during your PhD. Mm-hmm. So that's. Yeah, hard. the cutting edge is just um, a lot harder to be in than the structured yeah. learning you're doing outside of the cutting edge. And just a, a counterpoint is that I, I have seen some biotech CEOs that have PhDs. So it is definitely a thing. Like the Ginkgo CEO, the Vita CEO used to be. I've seen a few cases where there used to be a PhD as a CEO, but then when the company is not doing so well, the board gets scared and puts someone with an MBA as in there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think like for, if you're running a, a company that is catering to scientists, I feel like it is, it can be an advantage to have a CEO who's also a scientist and it kind of gives you a bit of street cred. That's a good point, actually. I do think um, having respect from your employees is a big deal in order to, to lead them effectively on, on a team. I'm curious, like in, in your guys' experience, is this something that you see a lot? You guys have PhDs. When you work for someone who doesn't have a PhD, if you've ever done that, do you feel like they don't know what they're doing? Like, what was that experience like? Not because they don't have a PhD. It might be for other reasons, but... uh... Yeah, I would only judge them if they have a lack of curiosity about what people on the ground are actually doing. Hmm. I think one thing that I've judged my bosses for in the past is for not questioning themselves. And I feel like um, questioning yourself is like a marker of people who have PhDs. Like Hmm. this saying, I have this idea, but it could be wrong in this way. Just having that additional step to say, how can my idea be wrong is, it's a correlation, not a causation. Yeah, it gets into the imposter syndrome thing almost, because I think some people, when they're not feeling confident about their own understanding, they might make assertions to try to sound confident. Whereas 
if you're just like coming to it with curiosity and from kind of a scientific perspective, like, oh, I don't know if this is true or if it's not, let's figure it out together. That works a lot better than just, oh, I heard this thing once. I'm going to say this so I sound smart. That's not useful, right? That's when we can like judge people and say like, mm -hmm. okay, no, we, this is actually like, this is cutting edge reaches. It's okay if we don't know everything, we need to figure it out. And yeah, I think leadership is the same way. There isn't always one right answer and it's not always obvious. So we just have to be, we have to give each other grace, like you said. <laughs> but I think this has been a great conversation. I think we have definitely answered the question now and I'm so glad we got you on, Steve. Where can people find you or anything that you want to share with our audience that they can like look you up and stalk you on the internet? Oh man. Um... I'm on LinkedIn. You can find my name, Steve Osazua. It'll be in the videos somewhere. Um, thank you guys for having me. It's been nice talking with you. And I'm looking forward, if you guys get more perspectives on this topic, I'm curious to see, you know, what we, we learn every time. I want people listening also or watching this on youtube you can't really add comments in a lot of podcast apps but you can do it on youtube so if you want mm -hmm. to add your own views and comments you can find this youtube video it's going to be on the om genomics channel so yeah leave your comments here if there were anything that you thought was interesting in the episode or just like viewpoints you want to share did it influence your own thinking about whether you want to do a phd that's always good to hear and yeah like what's what's the final answer should you do a phd i lean towards yes that's my final answer but oh. but i lean towards the hybrid approach that you mentioned maria where you work for a bit get a better idea of yourself and also what you want in the world and then go back to school with more focus mm. i like but that I answer yes. i was gonna say it depends but i like your answer better <laughs> yeah all right uh thank you steve so much for coming on this was great and thank you all for listening Home genomics podcast signing off